Hi, and welcome to this installment of our new Books at the Heyman Center panel podcast, sponsored by Columbia's Office of the Divisional Deans and the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, and the Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities. I'm Olivia Branscombe. And I'm Tim Lundy. The presentations you are about to hear come from an event held on April 19th, 2021, honoring the work of Chris Washburn, an associate professor of music at Columbia University and the founder and director of Columbia's Louis Armstrong Jazz Performance Program. Professor Washburn writes about jazz and salsa music and also plays the trombone with jazz groups throughout the world. In 2020, he published Latin Jazz, The Other Jazz, a new history that recovers the central role of Latin American culture and music in shaping the musical genre of jazz. Professor Washburn argues that the complexity of jazz as an international genre and a living musical tradition has been simplified in previous histories. Stories about the history of jazz often rely on a simplistic binary between black and white identities and music in the United States and ignore the multicultural nature of jazz and the contributions of musicians from Latin America and the Caribbean. In his book, Professor Washburn traces the roots of jazz back much further than other histories, all the way to 1716, when Caribbean slaves first began to arrive in New Orleans and brought Afro-Caribbean music and dance traditions with them. From the beginning, popular music in America has been multicultural, and studying Latin jazz helps us better understand how all contemporary popular music came to be. First, we will hear Professor Washburn explain how the idea for this book grew out of his own jazz listening and performance. He will also play some music to illustrate the deep influence of Latin jazz. Afterward, we will hear a response from Francis Negron Moutonnier, a professor of English and comparative literature at Columbia University. You know, this is a labor of love, and in order for, as anybody who's written a book, it really takes a village. And I am grateful for everyone that participated in this village and constructing this. And I, I am so grateful. The acknowledgments in this book could have been longer than the actual book. As I said, as, as a labor of love, this is music that I've dedicated much of my own professional career uh, playing. I've been playing uh, music that's sometimes called Latin jazz for over 30 years, maybe now, no, over 40 years now, yikes. And um, of course, throughout the years, it's come up with various labels. But I always felt in my jazz history classes and when I would read historical narratives about jazz that the body of music that I loved, the musicians that were so influential in my life, oftentimes were written out of those histories. They just didn't, they didn't appear. And so what kind of music am I talking about? So I tried to like graph this out and I called it the Latin jazz continuum for better of any, anything else, where there on one side, there was these Caribbean, South and Central American traditions, folk, dance, popular music and performance practice. And on the other side, there was this jazz music and its performance practices. And then everything in between was an intercultural shared space where there's a dialogue of influence between the two for many, many years. But the more I listened deeply into that, I realized that there was so much that 
you know, this was just an imagined binary in the sense that most of the music that I played was existed somewhere on this in in this intercultural space and on a on a different plane. And so I wanted to parse this out. As I went back and started studying the history of this music, I kept coming across this. Dizzy Gillespie, the great trumpet player, and Chano Pozo, the great Cuban conguero. It's the birth of Latin jazz. That's the moment that came out. And of course, their, their, um, the time that they collaborated was in the mid-1940s, 1946 to 1948, roughly. Chano Pozo playing congas and Dizzy Gillespie playing claves. The two sticks that are played together that play a rhythm that you're going to hear about in a moment that are really serves as the rhythmic organizing principle for many Afro-Cuban uh, musical styles or Afro-Cuban-influenced musical styles. It's this little five-beat phrase that like, sounds like this. As I was playing in a salsa club one night, I was writing an article on my Latin jazz, my first Latin jazz, and I was writing about all of the clave rhythms or clave-like rhythms and Caribbean rhythms that I was hearing in jazz pieces, and the musicians came up to me. And it was a combination of Cuban, Puerto Rican, Colombian, and Dominican musicians in that band. And they asked me, what are you writing? I told them what the article was about, and uh, they said, oh, you're just talking about clave and clave rhythms and jazz? Have you listened to Beethoven lately? It's in all music. And the way that their perspective of hearing it in so much music besides just jazz, but also in hip hop, in, in R&B and rock and roll made me want to go further and look at this, this connection through these rhythmic um, little phrases and rhythmic cells. And that's how this project got started. And that was about 25 years ago. And as we start to dig, there's this famous quote by Jelly Roll Morton, the Creole pianist from New Orleans, who was so integral in kind of formulating what jazz is. And in, 19, in the late 1930s, he was interviewed and he started to refer to the Spanish tinge. The Spanish, you have to put, in order for jazz to be jazz, there has to be a Spanish tinge. And what he was referring to at that time was the Spanish-speaking nations of Central America, of the Caribbean, and South America, and the influence that they had. And in many ways, it was the rhythmic underpinning of jazz and the foundations of jazz. And you can hear that in a lot of his pieces. And then I came, as I started to go back further and further in time, I came across this ad. And this was something really unusual. This is March 9th, 1917. Now let's think about the backdrop of this. We're still in the middle of World War I. We're right on the cusp of the last major pandemic that we had, the Spanish flu. And this is an article from one of the first appearances of one of the of the first band that used the word jazz to be recorded. And in this particular case, it's almost like time travel. You can look into the past and you can see what, in this particular case, white audiences would have been perceiving of this type of music. An entire novelty, and this was produced by one of the major uh, Broadway producers who would go on to produce the Ziegfeld Follies, that John Murray Anderson. And what he, he builds this as is this whole experience, exotic experience, seance tea dances, whatever that is. And it's featuring karma in medium mystic dances of the Orient and Tencita Guerra, a gypsy crystal gazer. And the original jazz dance and the Cuban dance on and Ouija boards will be provided. So this is like just a, 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 a cornucopia of exotica, you know, of otherness, of very problematic racist uh, views of otherness. 
But in this particular case, the kind of two main dances that were popular among white audiences in 1917 being performed at, get this, Reisenweber's at Columbus Circle, whose address is right next door to where Wynton Marcellus and Jazz at Lincoln Center is today. This is kind of like ground central for white audiences' interaction with jazz at, in, at this moment. And who do we see here? The original Dixieland Jazz Band, the original five white musicians from New Orleans that recorded for the very first time in this year. And when they came, they were playing not only jazz, but they were also performing Cuban dance on as well. Very popular. And this is part of the, the uh, history that doesn't get written about. is like you hear about what they recorded, but what they were actually playing and what was the actual practice of these band, these musicians. But what did come from this, from this performance was a review about this new tune that they played where the dancers went crazy and it was called the Tiger Rag. I want to play that for you. And I want I'm going to just play a snippet of it because we don't have very much time. But this is just at the moment where um, this particular song starts to kind of really groove and where the dancers get down. Oftentimes what it would be called is a hot chorus. And remember that rhythm that I just played for you. But listen to this, um, uh, uh, this selection. this selection. This entire piece is infused with Caribbean rhythms. That's what Jelly Roll Morton was talking about in terms of the Spanish tinge. That was the moment where these the, the band would take off and the dancers would be uplifted. And so what I wanted to do is ask, why is this not being written? And why, where does this come from? And as I traced back the Caribbean influence in New Orleans, I was able to trace it back all the way until the year 1617. So the close relationship of New Orleans with the Caribbean began with the first wave of enslaved peoples to reach its port. Roughly 3,500 enslaved peoples arrived from the islands of Guadeloupe, Martinique, and Saint-Domingue. At the time, there were only 3,000 people living in the entire Louisiana territory. So this is doubling the populations in that area. This initial importation infused New Orleans and the lower Mississippi Valley with a nascent Afro-Caribbean black population that established neo-African belief systems and practices that are still very much present in New Orleans today. The enslaved West Indian peoples also brought a number of Afro-Caribbean music and dance traditions that would play fundamental roles in the performance practices in, in Congo Square in the ensuing years. Really the roots, the very roots of New Orleans musical styles and the very first moments of a black musical practice here in the United States. So in many ways, my idea was to trace back the roots of jazz and Latin jazz, the birth of Latin jazz, is really 
in the year 1716, way before 1946 with Dizzy Gillespie, and way before even the birth of jazz. This is where it gets started. And of course, we can see, though, that in this particular case, and in also other early accounts, oftentimes jazz would be referred to as black music. But the notion that Cuban dance song was coupled with it right here shows how well established this was as we move forward in the years. You know, oftentimes jazz and musical traditions are portrayed as a means of a metaphor of a tree. It's constructed like a family tree, and this is, I'm going to read briefly from my book. The roots, the trunk, the branches demonstrate kinship relationships of influence and indebtedness. And, and this depiction here, it was drawn by Herbie Mann, a white jazz musician from the United States who dedicated much of his professional career to playing Latin jazz. In typical fashion, Africa is centered in the root system along with the colonizing cultures of the New World. In this particular case, Cuba, Puerto Rico, and Brazil serve as the trunk and the lowest branches in this Latin jazz tree. The outer branches encompass specific genres and major innovators many of whom I discuss in my book. Various branches are then interconnected by jazz musicians who are represented like vines that fluidly traverse the tree from style to style and place to place. Man is himself is depicted in that role. He appears in two spaces in the canopy of the tree, connecting jazz, Brazil, and Cuba. Conceiving of Latin jazz in this way has some benefits as it acknowledges the shared past of a validly metaphorical way that represents the kinship relations among innovative musicians. However, once again, it relegates Latin jazz to being a separate singular tree, not necessarily connected to the other conifers growing in the same forest. As a separate entity, the Latin jazz tree does not capture the full extent of the cross-pollinization, the intercultural exchange, and the intrinsic interconnectivity, the truly global breadth of the music. If we must conceive of jazz or Latin jazz in this way, we must clarify which species of tree. And I've decided to come up with a different metaphor. I suggest the model of the aspen tree. See, you see, aspirin forests are not collections of individual trees, but rather all one organism sharing the same root system. The forest is a singular tree. Aspirins are considered the second largest living organism on Earth, second only to the Great Barrier Reef. Within each sprout, the same DNA and past history are embodied. In jazz, each iteration and substyle and performance resonates the music's past, its roots and its social history reaching back to the mid-1700s. In an aspen forest, each manifestation of the organism looks like a distinctive tree with unique features. But just beneath the tree's outward appearance, they are fundamentally the same. The same can be said of the musicians and their respective distinctive jazz styles, all sharing the same DNA. Conceived of this way, Duke Ellington, Louis Armstrong, Tito Puente, Machito, Mario Bauza, Dizzy Gillespie, Chano Pozo, and every other musician discussed in this book are unified and interconnected on the most fundamental and foundational level. All manifestations of jazz are intercultural, transnational, and multivocal at their, at their core. I was playing with Tito Puente at Blue Note, one of his last uh, performances in New York City. And as we were sitting uh, backstage, he had a surprise guest. And it made me think of the root system, how all of them are connected with a singular root system. In walked Max Roach, one of the greatest jazz drummers of all time. 
both of them had embraced. They had been friends since the 1940s. They sat giggling like little children on the couch backstage at the Blue Note, sharing stories and sharing gigs and and stages that that, that they had shared and played together. This is what an Aspen forest looks like. Thank you. Next, we will hear a response to Latin jazz from Francis Negron Muntaner, a professor of English and comparative literature at Columbia University. Professor Negron Muntaner is the director of Columbia's Center for the Study of Ethnicity and Race, as well as a writer and filmmaker and a scholar of Puerto Rico. In her response, Professor Negron Muntaner considers the implications of Washburn's multicultural approach to jazz for other disciplines and fields of study. We will also hear Professor Washburn give a deeper account of the relationship between jazz and pandemics and explain how listening to music helps us imagine a different future. At the end, we will hear one last jazz recording by the saxophone player Miguel Zenon, who is also present at Professor Washburn's New Books panel. I will start by saying that it's a true pleasure to read this book. It actually took me longer than I thought it would because I stopped to listen to the references, comparing them. Uh, So um, it it was a thoroughly enjoyable process. Uh, I am not a music scholar, so, um, and I just came out of writing something about Arthur Schomburg and visuality. And I think my comments very much are intertwined uh, as I was reading Chris's book. Um, so I want to focus on three things, and, and to, uh, to quote a, a, a notable quote, Oye Como Va. Although this book is about music, one way that I would describe it is as a counter-visual account of jazz by way of Latin jazz. And by what I mean by a counter-visual, and by extension, you can maybe also call it a counter-audiovisual account, is precisely because, as Kevin mentioned, it sees the unseen it hears the unheard and addresses a violence which is committed not only against Latinos in music or Latinos in general, but also about all of us in some way. The complexity of our relationships and the possibilities that are part of that. I I started noticing this very strong counter visual component to the book by making a list, this is the literary scholar coming in, making a list of all the words, concepts that were invoked in the book to note this violence, overlooked, ignored, erased, omitted, unwritten, unrecognized, unacknowledged, neglected, ancillary, mislabeled, exoticized, othered, diminished. Another way to see the countervisuality beyond the actual terms that are visual is juxtaposing certain very eye-opening passages um, that Chris has in the book. For instance, and this might not be, um, well, for instance, um, one writer who I quote Chris, who wishes to remain anonymous commented, throughout the 1980s and 1990s, for some reason, if the record, we're talking vinyl, wasn't straight ahead jazz, they, the publication, would penalize it. For instance, every time I would review an Eddie Palmieri record and give it five stars, they would publish the review with only four stars. 
In Louis Armstrong's version of the peanut vendor, which is uh, originally from Cuba, a Cuban tune, all musicians are listed except those playing percussions. This countervisuality that I feel um, Chris's book advances, however, is not a diversity and inclusion industry type of claim. More it is that by showing what is not seen and relating it in a certain Latin jazz way, the book tries really to shift how we understand ourselves, our relationship to others and the stories that shape us. And he does this by underscoring the very different processes by which music is made, canons are imposed, nationalities are affirmed, and business plans are executed. And here, when he talks about this process in this Latin jazz way, he adopts a very different vocabulary. He talks about copying and synchronicity and interculturality and Creole Creoleness and transnational and multivocal. And to give an example of how that method of juxtaposition works, and then maybe not entirely fair, comparing Chris's approach with uh, House Resolution 57 from the US Congress from 1987. But I think the juxtaposition I, uh, reveals part of Chris's method and also what's at stake in the method. So the House Resolution says, Jazz has achieved preeminence throughout the world as an indigenous, meaning Native American music and art form, a uniquely American musical synthesis and culture through the African American experience. Jazz is hereby designated a rare and valuable national American treasure. In one of the passages that Chris describes how Latin jazz intertwines and is synchronous with jazz in general. He talks about Aspiasu, a white Cuban band leader, and says Aspiasu appropriated and mediated Black street culture to cater to popular white notions of Afro Cuban Blackness, all the while undermining the established and prejudicial racial divides in the milieus in which he performed through his multiracial hiring practices. For Armstrong and Ellington as Black jazz musicians, their renditions of the peanut vendor appropriated Aspiasu's appropriation, all the while negotiating their own positions within confines of white notions of stage blackness, simultaneously by pointing to a more othered otherness than their own positions as black entertainers within white performance domains. They could each in his own way appropriate rather than be the object of appropriation. I feel like the juxtaposition of those two passages says a lot about what we're missing in these simpler narratives. Ultimately, by generating and combining various different forms of knowledge differently, Chris makes an argument for a fundamental epistemological shift. And in that process, among the many ways that this is done in the book, I want to um, underscore a concept that he introduces that I think could, we could discuss more, uh, which is the concept of black archipelago. It's not entirely defined in the book. Uh, it appears in different moments. Um, but I find the even the reference to archipelago pretty fruitful as a way to think about other epistemological ways about telling these stories. In my own work and that of other people working on archipelagos around the world, one of the reasons we're using the term archipelago is to reframe the notion of island. 
For instance, the island of Cuba, the island of Puerto Rico, the island of Trinidad or Hawaii, while there are certainly island masses that could be called these names, none of these places are islands. And I feel this has tremendous repercussions because islands are often imagined as, as, as Latinos and immigrants and other groups as isolated, disposable, vulnerable, exotic, other, far away. Archipelago then allows us to see the world not as islands, but as interconnected networks of land and ocean, I guess a variation of the Aspen tree, and to relativize the ideological notion of mainland or trunk or nation. It also allows us for other practices of relating, visiting over invading, exchanging over extracting, nuance over binaries. So it feels to me at the end that Chris's book is about a certain music, a certain way, which is to say about new forms of being and forms of living, which we need in all domains. So thank you so much, Chris. Yes, Francis, when I saw that House Resolution 57 and the way that it was declaring jazz, it was a very important moment in jazz, right? It happened in the 1980s. It was a moment where their jazz musicians were really struggling. And it was the first time that a black music had been recognized in that in a kind of the political center of the United States. And what it did is it opened up the music for arts funding. It started to align it with classical music. But of course, as soon as you say that jazz is a rare treasure and is is meant for the museum, you're basically killing it off. It's, you know, it, it's putting it in a sarcophagus and to be preserved. And the the, the reality of my life as a jazz musician was that jazz is vibrant and very much alive. We must keep in mind that, that jazz emerges as the most popular music in the world in the aftermath of the biggest pandemic that we had had for hundreds of years. And why is that? Because it's so vibrant and it's so fluid and adaptable that jazz musicians were able to create things that built upon what happened prior to that and, and persevered in, uh, uh, throughout to come up with something truly um, spectacularly gorgeous and popular and captivating and compelling. And you know, one of the definitions that I find so appropriate for for jazz has been uh, told by many people, but I heard it um, from Bill Easley, the saxophone player that played with uh, uh, Ellington and Basie, band, the big bands. And he said, jazz is a beautiful response to adversity. And in, in that sense, jazz is a verb and you can't kill a verb. You know, it's about living. And so, first of all, it bodes well for the the future of this music and the future of jazz when we get out of this pandemic that we're currently in, I cannot wait to hear the jazz response to that. But indeed, I look at Latin jazz and that, that, that kind of cultural interchange is something very vibrant and very much alive. And so it gives me great hope when I hear this music. I also feel as though Islands are never isolating, right? Because they're so easy to come and go with, either through um, by flying or through boats. They're they're not landlocked. There's there's a there's a flow. There's a fluidity, and it's just like even during the embargo in Cuba, 
They could still hear the radio airwaves coming, and they penetrated those boundaries, those economic uh, uh, structures that were in place to keep the musicians far apart. But no matter what, we still had access to all those bootleg recordings of, of Cuban music at that time, even though they were illegal to have. And... Um, it was unstoppable. Music penetrates. It penetrates walls. It penetrates neighborhoods. It, it doesn't stop at, at barriers. I mean, anybody that lives in a New York City apartment knows that. And, um, and in some ways, music tells the future. It's like one of the few art forms that actually foretells the, the future, right? The function of music in society is like you're walking down the street and you hear a siren. You know an ambulance is coming before you see it. That's what music does. And that's why it's so important to listen so closely and carefully deeply because what resounds in those sounds is this entire history, uh, this relationship of creolization, of kind of new hybrids emerging from, uh, from various strains and musicians taking the materials they had at hand, which is a jazz aesthetic, right? To persevere in the face of adversity and create something new, uh, create something beautiful with scant materials at times. I mean, it's the, it's the experience, the whole colonial experience and the African-American experience is centered right in that, but it's a black experience experience that's shared throughout these nations that are not only in the United States, but th throughout the Americas and throughout the Caribbean. And so it, it is, is it, it, it's truly um, uh, kind of at, at its fundamental heart is this exchange, this exchange of ideas. And it uh, is a testament to um, the beauty that can come when diverse peoples come together, other peoples come together. Instead of battle, what can you do? You can make beautiful music together and you can dance. And indeed, it's where racial segregation happened in this country way before any other place. And it was in, it was Don Aspiazzo and his Havana Casino Orchestra playing in Midtown it was the very first time that you had an interracial performance amongst white audiences to see that. It's not what the musicians were doing, you know, in jam sessions at night. There was uh, there was desegregation happening on bandstands throughout um, the United States and the Caribbean way before um, it happened here. That's telling the future. It shows you what is possible and what can happen. Just like the dance floors of the Palladium was one of the first truly uh, interracial dance floors that happened. Why? It was the music that brought those people there and, and brought them to mix in an unprecedented way. Part of the erasure, and I document this in, in the book, has to do with the kind of the way that the United States is defined as a binary of black and white. There's not much space for anything in between that. And of course, what happens is, is that when you're creating a historical narrative, the very first historical narratives that um, uh, came out were oftentimes written by white male scholars in the mid uh, in the mid 20th century that were very interested in promoting jazz and the music that they loved and what ends up happening is is that they had to create and canonize and create a neat narrative in order to support it and in some ways their idea was to move it into the academy to to make it worthy of study an object of, of study so there was this kind of scholarly pursuit there's also uh, advocacy and promotion and um, th 
throughout most of the 20th century, that wasn't really interrogated too much, right? It was really people were pushing for this music to be accepted as something more than just popular music of the day. So in other words, when they would create compilations of Arms, Louis Armstrong's greatest works, despite the fact that in 1930, the Peanut Vendor was his number one hit song, they would not include that. And they would include other things instead, so that it would create this, in other words, why, how can you uh, um, attribute a Cuban song becoming a number one hit song by the most famous jazz musician in 1930? It doesn't fit neatly into compartmentalizing this trajectory that you're going to talk about that eventually get into HR 57, where it's a, it's African American music and and uh, it's it's a it's a rare national treasure. That's where it was moving to, and so there's no space for anything that is perceived as not African American. And but it, the harsh reality is, you go to New Orleans, and even if you visit there today, you'll notice that the architecture is different, the food is different, the music sounds different, the people talk different. Why? Because culturally, it has a different trajectory than the rest of a lot of places in the United States. And if we're talking about that early music, then how do you how do you grapple with this kind of erasure and this silencing? And as Francis says, violence, absolutely. So something that I disagree with Duke Ellington when he said that no music is political, I I think all music is political and all writing about music is definitely political. And absolutely, it's me pushing back, especially at this moment, right? This is a significant historical moment. We're on the precipice of huge change, not only in terms of race relations uh, in this country, but also what's going to happen after the pandemic. And in more so than at any other time, even though I've been working on this intervention for quite some time, it is the moment where we need these kind of interventions to fully understand the moment we're in. Think about it. The pop stars of today, who are they? I mean, how is it possible that J-Lo and Mark Anthony and Christina Aguilera, and we can go on and on and on, or Beyonce is putting out videos where she's uh, referencing uh, Santeria ceremonies. Like, why is that possible? How did that happen? How did Bad Bunny happen? How is it possible that the number one hit song in the United States could be uh, from a Spanish-speaking uh, artist? You cannot understand this if you don't understand this history that's in this book, that it's always been there. And there's a reason why the Peanut Vendor becomes a huge hit in 1930 in Spanish and at different moments and other times and stuff that uh, uh, and, and, and this is something that Francis writes on so eloquently as well. These pop stars that, emer that emerge. Um, I love your work on Rick, uh, Ricky Martin and also J-Lo and many others. So I uh, highly recommend that as well. I just wanted to say that uh, one of the reasons I think the book is valuable across fields is that what you're describing uh, is present across fields. Like you could pretty much do a very similar account uh, of other arts, art forms, uh, but also of everyday life. Uh, there, there's a, a general uh, erasure that uh, blocks possibilities, uh, blocks uh, not only uh, in the arts, but of constructing new, new ways of relating to each other, new ways of narrating our, our history, uh, new ways of building a future together, right? Uh, so I just wanted to say that that's one of the key reasons to buy this book, uh, which is it connects to all these other um, um, scholarship debates and political questions. Uh, because at the end, why why write these things anyway if if it's not to transform 
this violence, uh, you know, and, and, and eliminate this violence and, and create uh, other types more enabling forms. I just have one more comment, and I and I uh, before we go, I know we're almost out of time, but it doesn't seem right to ha be talking about a book that's on Latin jazz without letting the music have the last say. And what I want to do is play something by from Miguel Zinan and play uh, one of my favorite cuts, which really addresses race, but it also is a tribute to one of the greatest Puerto Rican singers of all time, Ismael Rivera. And this was one of his hits, El Negro Bembon, which is a famous song, that uh, Cuban song that gets referenced in a number of places. Um, and uh, it's about, uh, you know, it's about police violence and street violence as well. Anyway, uh, I'd like to just listen to uh, a minute or so of this and let Miguel have the last say. And also you understand why he is such an important figure in this music today and why he's in my book and why we invited him here today. for listening to today's podcast celebrating Chris Washburn's Latin jazz. We hope you'll join us next time when we discuss Frank Garitti's The Sports Revolution, how Texas changed the culture of American athletics. From Columbia University's Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities, I'm Tim Lundy. And I'm Olivia Branscombe. Our theme music is the song Moonrise by Poddington Bear, from soundofpicture.com. <laughs>